Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Let me start by playing back for you the interview that recorded yesterday with the Premier of Alberta, Danielle Smith. It's a two-parter. First one deals with her thoughts about Prime Minister Brian Mulroney's passing, and then the direction for the province of Alberta. Here's the Premier. Well, I was very young when he was in office, but he was a figure around our dining room table because my my dad always praised him, first and foremost, for ending the National Energy Program, which was so devastating to our province, but also credited him with uh, bringing down inflation and interest rates as well. My parents went through that time where mortgage rates went up to 20%. And so he, he really felt like, uh, like Mulroney was the architect of getting us back to some measure of fiscal sanity. Um, I personally got involved in, in politics around that time. He was still leader, and he was one of the main reasons why I decided to join the, the Campus Club for the Progressive Conservatives. And I got a, a chance to meet him through that at a at leader's dinner. He, he and Mila were both working the room, and I, I was very fortunate to be able to, to shake hands with him. I, I had a couple of conversations with him uh, over the years, and I, I just always found that he, he seemed to have a lot of time for people and was uh, always... I'm always ready to give advice. So I, I think he's going to be very missed. I think he's a, he's just been such a, an incredible figure in Canadian history. Yeah. Very uh, personable and generous man. Uh, personally, I, uh, I had arranged, shall we say uh, a live one-on-one interview with, with him when he was prime minister and he was down to 12% in the polls at that time. And, uh, They didn't want to give me the interview, but let's just say I engineered it. You were in radio. You have a good idea of what I'm talking about. So we had had a one-on-one interview at L'Hotel in Toronto where the party convention had just ended. And it took me a few minutes. I I got into the room. He was there. got up, shook my hand. He was just chatting like we've been friends for 30 years. And it took me a few minutes to realize I wasn't there for a social call. I was there to interrogate him. But he he just had this... This this really uh, positive attitude about him. I just personally like the man. Yeah, he. Um, I remember he called my producer, and she recognized his voice immediately because <laughs> he did just have quite a distinctive voice. And you know, that's what I've heard about him is that he he was always uh, very kind to, to to people who uh, who who weren't even at his. Uh, level of achievement in politics. He was nice and friendly to uh, to every person that he met. And I, I think that probably did him well in, in history. He, he may have had a, a couple of difficult times in those final years. He uh, didn't get the Meech Lake Accord passed, didn't get the Charlottetown Accord passed, had a controversial defense contract that went to Quebec instead of Montreal, or instead of uh, Winnipeg, and ended up as well 
I think with the GSC, probably the right decision uh, to make us competitive with the with the uh, Americans after signing the free trade agreement. But uh, on the balance of things, people people uh, I think because we weren't able to keep the country united, keep those interests of Alberta and Quebec in, in sync, even though he, he he dearly tried. I think unfortunately that that um, must have been one of those things that he he wished he'd been able to solve. Yeah, Premier, you mentioned uh, that he. Uh, did away with the National Energy Program, which was delivered by the current Prime Minister's father. Uh, What were some of the other major significant initiatives that he undertook that affected Western Canada? I would say that that was probably the the most significant. Um, But one of the things I found so interesting about him as a Prime Minister from Quebec is that, that I think he had... Uh, an equal interest in in the West as as well as from Quebec. That doesn't always happen, and I it's it's very rare when you when you think after him how few uh, conservative politicians have been able to to get get a toehold in Quebec after the creation of the Bloc Québécois. So I, I think that that's a very unique talent that he had in understanding that Alberta and and Quebec's interests were actually very much aligned. That the, the problem was an overbearing central government trying to do too much in areas where it shouldn't and respecting provincial rights. I mean, in, in many ways, if if he had had, had the, the first approach with the Minch Lake Accord, I think we'd probably have a much happier federation right now. Because I, I think he really understood that balance uh, a lot better than, than some of the successors has. I was talking to somebody earlier in the week, and they were telling me they think the GST was maybe his most positive contribution to Canada, and I can remember sitting in the in the studio with Michael Wilson, his finance minister, and we were trying to figure out what the GSD was. He couldn't tell me, and we were we were doing the donuts thing. You may remember the story. Do you do you put the GST on six donuts if they're in a package, or does it go on one donut if you buy a donut individually? That's the that's the level to which we were reduced, and it turned into a ludicrous discussion. But what what do you th- what what GST? What do you think? Well, what do you think of that? <laughs> I'm pretty sure. I want to to raise that topic again. Albertans would not agree with you on that one. I can tell you one of the lasting legacies was a piece of legislation passed in Alberta saying that there would never be a sales tax unless it was put to a referendum. So I would say that that it was incredibly unpopular, probably fueled the rise of the the Reform Party. And I I don't think that history has been any kinder to it. If you remember as well, Jean Chrétien, won an election saying he was going to eliminate the GST, ultimately didn't. And then when Stephen Harper came in, he reduced it by two percentage points. So it, it, it probably was a smart policy to replace a hidden tax, a manufacturer's tax, with a, a more transparent tax. But I, I don't think that there's any love. Okay. <laughs> like, no, well, I don't problem. like it. I still don't like it. I understand it now, but I still don't like it. Uh, his relationship with American presidents, what are your thoughts? I must say, coming into politics from the conservative movement, it was uh, it, uh, it, 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 he was one of three uh, conservative politicians of major stature at the time. If you look at Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, and I, th- I think that because that was a really unique time in history to be able to have those three political leaders in three uh, three of the, of the strongest economy countries in the world able to be in sync on policy. And I, I think that the fact that we were able to get 
through a free trade agreement um, is, is much to the, the credit of that relationship. But, you know, he also uh, broke ranks as well with the with UK and the US on a really important issue of, a, of apartheid and fighting against uh, discrimination and racism in South Africa, for which he's been widely lauded and, wi- and widely honored. And I, I think as well, he, he, he also advanced issues on the environment Environment was very important to him, participating in UN conferences, but also uh, addressing issues of uh, sulfur dioxide emissions that uh, were causing acid rain. So I think that he uh, was he was able to advance conservative policies, but also be able to, to distinguish himself from from his much larger neighbors in in some really important policy areas. Let me move on to the initiatives that you're undertaking in Alberta. And uh, you're limiting introduction of renewables, which will be built on farmlands and creating buffers for pristine landscapes. Your critics are worried. They always go to the critics, right? You're worried. Uh, they're worried that you'll limit or stop private investment in renewables in the province. Can you talk to us about that, please? Well, it's not the case. I mean, when you look at what's happened in Ontario, they had a seven-year moratorium on wind and solar. I think they've just announced a call for 5,000 megawatts to come in on a, on a, a power purchase agreement. Uh, Manitoba just announced they wouldn't be uh, allowing um, the in, any independent uh, uh, renewable development. And I, I must say, we are we are the destination for private investment because we're the only province that allows it <laughs> because we have... We don't have a, a crown corporation that controls our, our power grid. So I think people need to look at it from that perspective and also understand that uh, we just had a, a, a threat of a power outage in the middle of January because at five o'clock at night, when it was minus 35, there was no wind blowing and no sun shining. And as a result, we had to rely 100% on our interties with our neighbors and natural gas. So when I look at, at wind and solar, I say, great, it can be a portion of our power grid, but I also need to make sure we bring on a responsible amount of wind and solar that has backup. So that's one part of it. The other part of it is that we've made mistakes in this province in not having enough clarity about who would pay when projects come to the end of their natural life and there's a big reclamation cost. So we want to make sure that that is staged over time so that money is there so landowners aren't left holding the bag. And we also know that um, we've seen around the world that there are there's litigation uh, against um, renewable against government for allowing renewable projects to take up prime agricultural land. So we, we, we don't want to find ourselves in those same positions. And so those are some of the guardrails that we've put in place. And I, I think we're going to continue to be the destination of choice for wind and solar. And a $200 electric vehicle tax introduced in your budget. That's gotten a lot of, uh, gotten a lot of tension, attention, maybe disproportionately, but talk to us about that, please. Well, uh, Saskatchewan does the same thing. And I think probably for the, the same calculation that we've done is that if we're going to see an increasing amount of uh, zero emission vehicles on the road, they have to, they have to pay their fair share of uh, what it costs to keep our roads maintained, especially since they're heavier. And so they would have exactly the same or greater impact. So we did a calculation of what the typical fuel tax would be for a typical vehicle that's using combustion engine vehicle. And that's what we've set the, the fee at. And so as the number of zero emission vehicles rises, that will um, have them paying their, their, their portion of the, of the road's cost. I think it's a pretty modest fee, quite frankly. And, and it makes sense for us to, to make sure that we have that parity now, just as the investment and purchases of those alternative vehicles are are beginning to grow. On the Pharmacare issue, um, you agree that Mr. Trudeau desperately jumped on Jagmeet Singh's final offer 
to continue their coalition agreement by signing on to Pharmacare. The Liberals, I don't think, wanted a national Pharmacare program at this time. And uh, you have said Alberta will not participate. Can you, uh, can you fill us in, please? Well, it's not a national universal Pharmacare program. It's a two-drug plan. And I have to tell you, we've got seniors on our Pharmacare plan. We've got those who are disabled. We've got people on AISH. We've got our entire public service. And I, if I went to them and said, hey, we're going to cancel your plan and we're only going to cover birth control and diabetes medication, do you think that's a fair deal? You, you'd say, you better believe not. I mean, this is the real problem is they're portraying it as something that it's not. A, a true national single-payer pharmacare program would cost $40 billion. And there is no point in doing something half-measured. If they want to come and assist us in expanding our current pharmacare program, which covers 5,000 different medications, so that more people are covered and we can make sure that everyone it does have insurance, then then let's have that conversation. But don't try to, to pretend to me that a two-drug plan is anything remotely close to what we're already offering in Alberta. It's insulting. You're calling uh, or asking for Mr. Trudeau to call an election. What are you getting back? Well, look, part of the reason for that is he, he flew into our province. His, one of his staff texted my chief of staff uh, hours before, and then uh, he does, does an announcement, slams my government, and then, and then flies out again. And, and the way I look at it is that is not cooperative federalism. That is not an appropriate way to be uh, engaging with the provincial government in their area of jurisdiction. He did the housing announcement without inviting my housing minister, without coordinating with us, without even telling us what was going on. And, and so it seems to me the only reason he staged that was so that he could criticize our province. And if that's what he's going to do, use us as a punching bag to try to win votes in the rest of the country, then, and if he's already in the middle of campaigning, then he should just call a campaign and get, get it over with so that we know either we'll be dealing with him for the next four years or, or we'll be dealing with, uh, with the uh, official opposition leader for the next four years. But, but trying to fight a proxy war with Alberta um, is not helpful when we have a lot of things that we need to solve. It's not very professional. And so that's what I'm saying. Either either come to the table, work with us in a spirit of collaboration, or call an election. Premier, let me, in a minute we have left, come back to your budget, and you're expecting a, a budget surplus this year. Not a huge budget surplus, but you're expecting a surplus. One of the things that I've uh, I've begun to see is that we've, we've been increasing spending at the rate of inflation and population growth. And the problem is that our revenues are not growing at the rate of inflation and population growth. So if we keep on doing this, it means that we're either setting ourselves up for borrowing and deficits uh, or over-reliance on our resource revenues, which I, which I would say we have right now. So um, I had to send uh, the signal that we, we've got to do things differently in Alberta. We, we've got to start slowing the rate of increases. We have to keep increasing because we're having people continue to move to our province. We still need to build schools and hospitals. We still need to hire nurses and doctors. But but we can't keep growing at a rate of 6 or 7 or 8% per year. It's just, it's just not sustainable. So I'm asking Albertans to, um, to work with us to be more restrained and find better ways of delivering the services, but also so that we can put some money into the Heritage Savings Trust Fund and start growing that so that it's a true sovereign wealth fund. If we just kept the investment and committed the fund, it would grow 
to about $125 billion by 2050. If we added $2 billion per year, it could grow as high as $400 billion by, by 2050. And then some future government will have a secure supply of investment income to replace our reliance on, on resource revenues. So that's the, the vision I've put out for our people in Alberta to work with us to strive towards so that we can create that alternative revenue stream. It takes a little bit of time to get there, but we've got to hunker down and, and be a lot more restrained over a long period of time in order to be able to achieve that target. And uh, we're, we'll, we'll, we'll see how this year goes. Um, I'm uh, very worried about the volatility in oil and gas prices, very worried about the, the potential if it goes too low of, of uh, putting us in a deficit position again. So we've got to take some measures now to make sure that doesn't happen. I've been talking to people about violence in schools. And people contact me and, and, and want to talk about it. And it's really, really a major issue right across this country. And it's being tamped down, as I understand, by school administrations in many cases. So I came across an op-ed in the National Post written by Dr. Paul Bennett, the founder of the Schoolhouse Institute. And the op-ed headline is, listen to this, Canada's schools have descended into a violent hell and we let it happen. Dr. Bennett, thanks for joining us. Good to be on your show. So our schools nationally have descended into a violent hell. Let's begin with that before we get into that we let it happen. How bad is the violence in our schools nationally? And I'll ask you to give us an overview from 20,000 feet. Well, the pandemic has subsided. And in its place, we've confronted a, an epidemic of school violence. It's being reported in every province and territory across Canada. And it comes in two forms. One is student-on-student -student violence, which tends to be underreported. And then the other is a student-on-teacher or student-on-staff member violence, which gets a lot more play because it's actually a very, very big part of the ongoing um, negotiations between teachers, school boards, and um, their unions. And so we've got a, a much more complicated situation. But in answer to your question, we have essentially an epidemic of school violence. It subsided during the period when schools were closed during the pandemic, but it is back with a vengeance. How violent? And let's talk about the scenarios that you described to us. Student on student, uh, student on teacher. How violent? Well, fists and uh, knives are far more common than guns in Canada's schools. It seems to be concentrated in the 4,700 um, public high schools, although the reported data um, gives a false impression because there's more data that's generated um, where it's collected in elementary schools than in secondary schools. Uh, essentially what happens in a secondary school is people are so intimidated they don't report it, or students are moving from class to class and violent incidents uh, just um, are part of the overall structure. But getting back to your question, I think what we've got is a serious uh, problem on two levels. One, uh, violent outbursts and um, significant disruptive uh, activities. And then low-level disturbances, which we now know from studies, um, the average class is disrupted once every 15 minutes by some kind of disruption. So low-level disruptions on an ongoing daily basis, 
and isolated incidents which attract the attention of the police and are ultimately um, ending up in the media. And then you get responses from the school districts mm. in that order. Uh, I have obviously more questions for you, but let me go to the second part of the headline of your op-ed. We let it happen. Explain, please. Well, I'm quite a critic of uh, what's happened since the abolition of the no tolerance policies. If you go back to Ontario in 2007, 2008, we were told that if we got rid of no tolerance policies and we didn't uh, really suspend or um, expel any students, we could have other means that we would deal with them and we would provide support, encouragement. We wouldn't uh, find um, those that are, um, I would say, marginalized kids uh, suffering as a result of being uh, unduly punished. And so we had would come in with a new strategy and that new strategy is called positive behavior supports. Well, we now know that it's not worked, um, nor have other things like pink shirt day. I'm sure your listeners are well aware of that because it just happened. Pink Shirt Day has been around since 2007, and it is uh, very, very common for people to rally behind it, but it doesn't work. Experts say that any one-day project or uh, one-day wonder, uh, which promotes confused messages like the Pink Shirt Day, uh, will have little or no effect. It's very, very uh, perfunctory. So we've got a variety of things. I'm a big advocate of looking at our current student behavior policies, doing a complete review, and changing the fundamentals of the relationship between teachers, students, and parents. So are you suggesting that we go back a few years to where there was actual consequence for ill behavior in the classroom or in the school? I think we should go forward with an approach which balances uh, some deterrence, which is essentially missing now, with the supports that we've developed over the last 15 years. I think we have the capacity to do better in this field, and I'm not satisfied with the explanations that uh, the no tolerance policy was a disaster and, and did all kinds of harms. I think there's uh, we threw the baby out with the bathwater. I'm not recommending going back. I'm recommending going forward with a what I call a student behavior strategy, uh, which is a completely new approach, which combines the two things. Now, um, I'm also in favor of uh, uh, some reporting of what's going on. Uh, you realize how underreported student-on-student violence is. Uh, if you take Ontario, for example, the last time it was reviewed by CBC Investigative Unit in October of 2019, they revealed that uh, half the reports were inaccurate. 77% uh, percent of the um, school uh, boards uh, did not really report any, any um, violence or expulsions. Um, so there's something seriously wrong with the reporting. Mm -hmm. So we have underreporting of the incidents, um, and then we have uh, a problem with a, a lack of real deterrence or consequences. Uh, even... Um, Teacher unions, for example, in the um, Thames Valley School Board, uh, there's been a real pushback against what is called progressive discipline, which is essentially this, that teachers are frustrated because they will find um, students misbehaving, um, you know, touching one another, uh, punching one another or threatening one another. And they'll actually report it and it goes nowhere. 
There's also the issue of principles and the conflict of interest they have. They want to present an image of their school as being safe and secure. So they're not really inclined to want to talk a whole lot about it. Plus, they all now insist that their school is trauma-informed. And uh, let's take Nepean High School, where a huge issue happened in uh, June of 2022. A mother, uh, Sarah Murray, uh, her son was beaten up and came home bloody. She went to the school and they, they actually at first said, no, it really wasn't as bad. They kind of denied it happened. And then they took her aside and they said, well, you realize that we have a trauma-informed school here. We don't want to unduly upset the teachers or the the parents or the others by talking too much about this. What I call is this is what I think is a bigger problem, the culture of silence mm-hmm. surrounding the level of violence in our school. Dr. Bennett, you also point out that teachers are not as placid or maybe compliant as they might as might have been, certainly not all of them. Teachers are speaking out. And you write about uh, um, a Twitter site or X site, Teachers Unite. Talk to us about that and what, what, are the, what is the mood of teachers? I can't imagine wanting to go to school and teach if you're faced with daily violence or you said every 15 minutes in a high school class in this country there's an incident. Every 15 minutes on average. What about this uh, Teachers Unite site? I think it's symptomatic of what's going on, and that is more and more teachers and educational assistants are speaking out uh, as they find it completely intolerable. And there are quite a number of well-publicized incidents. I referred to the Thames Valley uh, District School Board where Teachers Unite is kind of based. And they've been consistent over the last two years in Ontario. They've been consistent over the last two years in vocalizing this. But wherever you look, in Saskatchewan, for example, last week, the Saskatchewan Teachers Federation had a press conference with four teachers who showed the injuries and uh, and um, actual terror that they faced in the classroom and were claiming that they, one, left the teaching profession. Anyway, and you go to British Columbia, there's some significant issues there that are being reported. So everywhere you look, and where I live in Nova Scotia, uh, just to give you an example, there were 12 police cruisers called to a school on February the, tw- uh, the 23rd, uh, and everyone took pictures of it, but the school board never had a press conference, never released any information, and they said it was under a police investigation. There's nothing been reported since. So I think what there are are all kinds of examples of things going on that uh, are not really actually being dealt with publicly. A lot behind the scenes. Yeah. I'm going to go turn this over to our callers in a few minutes. But I recall 30 years ago, we were talking about bullying in the schools. And that was a big issue. But the teachers still seem to have control. But I'll never forget what they seem to. But I'll never forget a call from a grade five teacher who told us on the air she and her family had moved. And they had moved far enough from their school elementary school, so her grade five students couldn't reach her house on their bicycles. That's how concerned she was 30 years ago. It's worse now, Rob. Oh, I'm sure. That's actually very common. Uh, Would you believe that in Nova Scotia, there were 13,776 violent incidents reported in 2021-22, up 22% 
from the year before. Good Lord. And that's a school, just, there are only 400 schools in all of Nova Scotia. There are 9,700 teachers, 140,000 uh, students. You have 13,776 reported violent incidents. Oh, come on. That's insane. And it, here, there are only four jurisdictions in Canada, uh, provinces and territories, that actually collect data. And they are Ontario, uh, which collects the data, New Nova Scotia, uh, none of it, and um, Yukon. Okay. Dr. So the provinces don't publish any data, so you can't really uh, get a sense of how yeah. bad it is. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Life has been breathed back into the SNC-Lavalin scandal. The Parliamentary Ethics Committee, they're busy people, this past week heard about and questioned the RCMP's failure to interview the Prime Minister during the investigation of the SNC-Lavalin, Justin Trudeau interference with the Attorney General Minister of Justice, Jody Wilson-Raybould. Remember, the mandate of the RCMP at the time was to investigate obstruction of justice and intimidation of a justice system participant. But they did not question the Prime Minister. They didn't think it was necessary. So I went out, I didn't go out, I, I, I started doing some looking for information I could share with you, and I just kept going back to the testimony of Jody Wilson-Raybould before Parliament as she spoke about the intimidation that she had to deal with from the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister's office. And we played a clip for you yesterday. We'll play it again shortly. But what a week in Parliament. Michael Barrett joins us. Back with us, the Conservative Party of Canada's Shadow Minister for Ethics and Accountable Government. Not much of either, Mr. Barrett. Uh, not after eight years of Justin Trudeau, Roy. Sure isn't. Uh, I want to play for you a little bit of what uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould said in that uh, hearing that she participated in four, four or five years ago, just over a minute. Can you, can you bear with us and have a listen? Yeah, let's hear it. Okay, let's have a listen. For a period of approximately four months between September and December of 2018, I experienced a consistent and sustained effort by many people within the government to seek to politically interfere in the exercise of prosecutorial discretion in my role as the Attorney General of Canada in an inappropriate effort to secure a deferred prosecution agreement with SNC-Lavalin. These events involved 11 people, excluding myself and my political staff, from the Prime Minister's office, the Privy Council office, and the office of the Minister of Finance. This included in-person conversations, telephone calls, emails, and text messages. There were approximately 10 phone calls and 10 meetings specifically about SNC, and I and or my staff were a part of these meetings. Within these conversations, there were expressed statements regarding the necessity of interference in the SNC-Lavalin matter, 
the potential of consequences and veiled threats if a DPA was not made available to SNC. These conversations culminated in December the 19th of 2018 with a conversation I had with the clerk of the Privy Council, a conversation that I will provide some significant detail on. A few weeks later, on January the 7th, 2019, I was informed by the Prime Minister that I was being shuffled out of the role of Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada. So what you have to remember, ladies and gentlemen, is that Jody Wilson-Raybould, at the time this was taking place, was the Chief Law Enforcement Officer of Canada as the Attorney General. She was also the Minister of Justice, and Mr. Trudeau's sought out and appointed Ethics Commissioner Marie Dion found Mr. Trudeau guilty of ethics violations with the bullying of Jody Wilson-Raybould, the Attorney General and Minister of Justice. And yet the RCMP didn't think it was necessary to interview Mr. Trudeau. All right, let's get back to Mr. Barrett, Conservative Party of Canada, Shadow Minister for Ethics and Accountable Government. What do you make of this, all of this, Mr. Barrett? We're back to, we're back to SNC-Lavalin, and I can tell you from what I've seen from listeners' com- communication with me over the n- last uh, 20 hours or so, people are very, very interested. Yeah, look, I remember the, uh, Ms. Wilson-Raybould's testimony well. I was uh, at the table um, as, a, uh, as a rookie MP uh, when, when she gave that bombshell testimony, and... You know, you you talked about the finding of the ethics commissioner, and his finding was very clear. He found that Mr. Trudeau used his position of authority as um, the as the head of cabinet, as the head of government, uh, over Miss Wilson Raybould to seek to influence directly and indirectly her decision on whether she should overrule the director of public prosecutions. Now. Uh, and the and the decision specifically was to grant a, a deferred prosecution agreement um, for a, a friendly uh, company to to Mr. Trudeau and his party, SNC Lavalin. And um, the director of public prosecutions office is designed essentially for this very reason, um, so as to avoid political interference by um, by the executive. And the testimony is it's just shocking to hear. Um, to hear the RCMP say that they didn't they didn't speak to Mr. Trudeau, and while we hear on one hand the RCMP say, well, we don't take direction from anybody else, and so of course there couldn't have been interference. They rely very heavily on on third parties. You know, in, in some of the documents that we've received through access to information requests, not so we see them not because the government's transparent, but because. Uh, we're diligent in following up on on what they've been trying to cover up. Uh, we see that that they lean quite heavily on Miss Wilson Raybould saying that she didn't um, perceive it there to be criminality. Well, you know, I don't think that the RCMP should be taking cues from uh, you know from people outside of their organization if they say that they're they're independent. And so I think that's pretty thin gruel, and um, and it's problematic when it it appears to Canadians that there's a two-tier justice system, and I think that it does a disservice to uniformed members of our National Police Service when there isn't transparency that's being executed at the most senior levels when it concerns 
alleged criminality involving members of the executive. And we have to remember the mandate, I keep saying this, the mandate of the RCMP was to investigate obstruction of justice and intimidation of a justice system participant. That was the mandate. So I, I want to ask you about Rivecan in a moment. But what's going to happen now with this SNC-Lavalin case? Is it back? Is there going to be, uh, are you going to pursue this? Uh, because I, there's an appetite for it. There, there's an, an, an unsatisfied appetite among Canadians who always have felt we didn't get the truth. Look, uh, at this same hearing, we raised the issue as well of the Aga Khan affair, and we found a similar phenomenon Roy, of the RCMP not having questioned um, Mr. Trudeau in a case where they had opened an investigation file um, for alleged fraud on government with the Prime Minister as the person of interest, uh, Mr. Trudeau as the person of interest. So again, we have a case with the RCMP who's the, 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 the top Mountie is appointed by the Prime Minister and then we have the prime minister at the center of, of an investigation uh, that's in uh, you know the front page of national newspapers, and they don't even pick up the phone and call the prime minister. And um, and I and I went through a decision tree that again we a-tipped that uh, the access to information requests, excuse me, that that went through a decision tree that the RCMP had created, and there was only one question unanswered, which they could have got by simply asking the prime minister, and that's if he'd had permission to deviate from the laws and, uh, in effect, to, to grant himself permission or to get permission from, from cabinet or perhaps the governor general. Um, and we asked him that question in the House of Commons, and uh, he confirmed he did not have permission, which satisfied by the RCMP's own, own table that they laid out in their documents that um, he would have been guilty of that alleged, uh, that alleged offense. And so this is a problem. But, you know, look, now we have a new commissioner of the RCMP since then. And um, and it is certainly there's keen public interest. I'm hearing unbelievable interest from from people, including inside the law enforcement community. We're saying that this needs a second look. Mm-hmm. And what's more is I've heard from people that say, you know, shouldn't the RCMP be referring this to a, a different police agency? And we've raised this with the RCMP before. And and it's their discretion to refer a matter to an outside agency, and they haven't. We've made that ask of them before, and they've they've declined. But um, you know, to maintain confidence in our in our um, in our national police force, um, you know, uh, obviously we continue to raise the issue, and we think that an independent look uh, would be um, you know would would behoove the RCMP and um, and and help to do something to enhance or restore Canadians' confidence um, that's slipping in this, you know, uh, cherished national institution or iconic national institution. But um, we've got to make sure that that everyone is assured that the Mounties get their man. Yeah. I can assure you that my listeners who've been in touch with me want more information. They want the truth about what happened at SNC-Levelin. And we have to remember Mario Dion, the ethics commissioner selected by Mr. Trudeau, found Mr. Trudeau guilty of ethics violations. Mr. Barrett, please stand by. We're going to come back to you. I want to talk to you about the... Uh, I can't even say arrive can anymore. My mouth just wants to say arrive scam. I can't even say arrive can any longer. Because it is a scam. And a very expensive one. Stay with us. Roy Greenshaw. 
Mr. Barrett, uh, share with us, please, what, what happened in Parliament this past week as far as GC Strategies are concerned and their two owners and what you were able to, I don't want to use the word sneak, but I'm surprised you got this past uh, the Liberals and they're going to have to appear before your committee. Tell us about that. Yeah, so we had at the at committee last week, we had put forward uh, a motion and it, it uh, was the... A subject of a, a two-day filibuster or liberal talkathon to try and uh, kill this motion, but we got the motion through committee and, and it had to go through the House, and that was for a very rare parliamentary um, tool to be uh, to be taken out of the toolbox, and that is for us to be able to issue um, not just a summons but a warrant and effect the arrest of individuals should they not appear before a parliamentary committee. And um, specifically, it's for the principals at the two-person IT firm, uh, GC Strategies, uh, who two guys working out of a basement in suburban Ottawa, who were paid about $20 million to work on Justin Trudeau's um, $60 million arrived scam. Uh, La Presse reported uh, about two weeks ago that this company was paid $258 million in contracts starting only weeks after Justin Trudeau was elected. Now, these, the reason this extraordinary step uh, was put forward was because they've been, uh, th- these two individuals um, have refused to appear, having been legally summoned three times. Now, it had to pass the House, and the Liberals um, at first uh, attempted to vote against it. Uh, but um, knowing the immense public pressure they would face for per- further perpetrating this cover up, um, we were able to pass it. And now the clock is ticking with. Uh, 21 days uh, that uh, started early this past week before these individuals must appear or they will be um, or they will be arrested and brought uh, by the parliamentary sergeant at arms to the House of Commons for questioning um, in this unbelievable uh, scandal that's seen allegations of um, of forgery, fraud, intimidation and bid rigging. It's um, it's unbelievable. Yeah, I kind of like to see that, actually, see them brought to uh the committee by the sergeant at arms. I think that would be appropriate. Can you share with us, though, what your deepest concerns are as this case continues to develop? Where are your thoughts are, what your concerns are on this Sunday afternoon? Well, my biggest concerns, Roy, are, are the alleged criminality. This is a big problem. Um, you know, when, when we talk about accountability, sometimes people wonder, well, what is it, what exactly does that mean? Well, we um, did, uh, you know, we covered a lot of ground with the RCMP when they were before committee this week. And um, and it was the first time, but the RCMP commissioner did confirm that the entire arrive can the arrive scam uh, is under RCMP investigation. Um, obviously, not something they do lightly, uh, considering um, the serious allegations that we've seen brought before them about this government that haven't resulted in uh, informal investigations or charges laid. But look, this is uh, tens of millions of dollars um, going to companies who uh, are alleged to, and in some cases have admitted to, um, forging um, yeah, resumes uh, and, and winning bids under, you know, uh, under false pretenses or fraudulent pretenses. Um, this is a tremendous problem. What's, what uh, Canadians um, have to be able to trust is that they're getting um, value for their money, but also that um, they're not... Uh, that fraud is not being perpetrated on them while Justin Trudeau and his government has been asleep at the switch 
um, which uh, which is what we're going to get to the bottom of. How how is it that uh, third party companies are writing their own contracts to, to their own benefit for millions of dollars, um, and and you know the public service. Uh, and the ministers responsible have have allowed that to come to pass. So this is what this is why we're prosecuting this issue. It's so important for not just public confidence, but we need to get some of this money back, and we need to get all of the documentation from the government. And we also passed an order of the house this week to do just those two things as well, without the liberals' help, I might add. But um, but that's uh, you know these are the issues that uh, that candidates conservatives are seized with because it's it's common sense. Yes, it is. Uh, I'm going to be talking to another guest about the uh, Winnipeg Lab story after the half-hour break, but give me 20 seconds on that one. Well, this is unbelievable uh, as well. This is where we had um, two scientists working at the Winnipeg uh, Lab. Turns out that they were operatives for the dictatorship in in Beijing, Um, and the government, uh, once this was brought to light, they, um, the House of Commons ordered the production of these documents, and uh, Justin Trudeau's government took the Speaker of the House, the Liberal Speaker of the House of Commons, to federal court to block the release of these documents. And now we see that these documents, in fact, reveal it wasn't national security they were protecting, it was their own incompetence. Yeah. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.